0: A few years ago, a staff writer for the Washington Post was asked to participate in a work group that was tasked with studying the newspaper reading habits of the Post's um, target demographic. uh, Wanting to better understand how people make use of their minutes and their hours each day, the writer placed a phone call to University of Maryland sociologist, John Robinson, who is considered the father of time use studies in the United States. And the reporter hoped to validate her work group's assumption that the reason for the decline in newspaper sales and online viewership was that people just didn't have time to read the paper anymore. People were far too busy for that. But Professor Robinson didn't validate that assumption. Instead, he told the writer that her team's conclusion couldn't be accurate, given that people in the 21st century. North America have upwards of 30 hours of leisure time each week. And Laura's like, what? Where? <laughs> we write. Some of you are looking at me like that can't be possible. The writer was skeptical as well. 30 hours of leisure time each week. What planet did Mr. Robinson reside on? Certainly not Earth. We have deadlines, we have to-do lists, we have obligations and meetings and projects to complete... We have laundry to fold and lawns to mow and dogs that need to be walked. We have places to go and people to meet and things to do and Twitter feeds to check. Here on planet Earth, we are busy. 30 hours of leisure time a week. Yeah, right. Talk about a preposterous thing to say. But then there have been other preposterous things said along the way, like this one. You can have life That's truly life, and you can have it in abundance. Or this one, whatever your burdens are, you can lay them down, and you can pick up freedom and peace in exchange. Preposterous, right? How about this? For every six days you work, you can take the seventh one off. You can actually do nothing for an entire 24-hour span. Or this one, if your soul is weary, it can be replenished. If you're feeling deflated, you can abound in hope. Who would say such crazy things? We're in a teaching series on how to simplify our too busy lives and how to unclutter our souls. And what we're after here is not just cleaner closets or more efficient use of our morning commute. What we're hoping for is straightened out souls, souls in which space has been cleared for the Holy Spirit to live and breathe and work. Several years ago, Bill Hybels penned a curriculum around this same topic, and as he explains it, the reason he devoted himself to studying the subject was the busyness of modern culture. He noticed the trend. When people, he asked uh, how they were doing as we do in normal, everyday conversation, the typical response included one or more of the following statements. I'm exhausted. I'm overwhelmed. I'm overscheduled. See it wasn't that he heard this type of response every now and then, he heard it nearly every time. Busyness has evidently become epidemic. And Bill knew that this trend must be reversed both for the sake of God's kingdom and for the sake of our own too busy souls. It's my conviction that the speed of our lives is killing us, maybe not physically, although don't get me started on the health ailments as we, as a society, suffer from a direct relation to stress, and we choo- that stress that we choose to carry with us. But emotionally, financially, relationally, professionally, spiritually, speed is not our friend. So let me ask you today, what is speed killing in your life? Where in your life are you gasping for breath or struggling to survive? Quality time with your spouse doesn't happen when you're moving too fast. Sound business decisions don't get made when you're in a hurry. Good money management doesn't happen when you're spending and going all the time. Meaningful connections with God can't take place when you're buzzing in and out of his presence. It's humbling for me to admit on more than one occasion I've allowed my life to get too hectic, too chaotic as a result of the decisions I've made along the way. But part of what compels me to share these things is that I know I'm not the only one struggling to live a simplified life. As I talk with people in the course of my job, I see and hear a lot, and for many of you, by your own admission, chaos reigns supreme in your world. Things feel like they're spinning out of control. Some of us may be working 70 or 80 hours a week and saying it's just the season, even as we see no end in sight. Some of us may be behind on nearly every bill, Uh, ever higher debt as our monthly norm. Others of us may be too scattered and scheduled, just plain tired to have an unhurried conversation with our family. We keep gaining more and more weight. The culprit is stress. The list goes on. But I've got good news for you. Jesus offers us a brand new list. We're back to those preposterous things I just talked about earlier. Things like you can abound in hope, you can live lives of peace. The list Jesus offers us says we can be victorious. We can know abundance. We can live lives that aren't out of control. Instead of being exhausted and overwhelmed and overscheduled, we can be rested, we can be confident, we can live at a good pace. And I know that seems preposterous given our hyper obligated, road weary souls. I know it seems unbelievable, but God says, believe it, it's true. I invite you to listen to a story found in Exodus chapter 33. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp, and whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to the tent, watching Moses until he entered. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to the tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent." Moses said to the Lord you've been telling me lead these people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me you've said I know you by name and you have found favor with me if you are pleased with me teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you remember that this nation is your people the Lord replied my presence will go with you and I will give you rest the promise is central to our discussion today Uh, That promise, we're going to come back to it in a moment. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you ask, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, there's a place near me, where you may stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now by way of context, the reason for this little exchange between Moses and God is that God has asked Moses to fill a particular leadership position for him, and God wanted um, his people to build a tabernacle, a dwelling place where his presence could abide, and he thought Moses should head up this project. Now the grooming process for this role had been unfolding for quite some time. The scene I just read to you uh, happened after God protected Moses, uh, when he was a baby, remember, from the, Egypt, uh, the Egyptian pharaoh, who was trying to exterminate all the Jewish population by killing all the male babies at, at birth? This conversation between Moses and God happened after Moses had grown incensed with the treatment of his fellow Israelites by the cruel Egyptians and allowed his anger to spill over to the point that he took the life of one of the slave drivers and fled in shame to Midian. This conversation happened after Moses received his call to ministry when he saw God in the form of a burning bush and it was not consumed and it happened after Moses was informed by God that he would be the vessel that God would use to deliver his people from bondage and oppression. After Moses' intense struggle with Pharaoh and after the ten plagues that finally caused Pharaoh to concede, after the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, after the divine handing down of the Ten Commandments, after God made a covenant with his people, Moses had racked up quite a bit of experience with his heavenly father, and now here in chapter 33 of Exodus, he has just one question for God. Will your presence still be with me? See, Moses had devoted his entire life to following God, to going God's way at every turn. He hadn't followed perfectly, but he followed faithfully. And now here he was facing perhaps the most significant leadership challenge of his life, building and dwell, a dwelling for the Most High God, and yet he sensed that the very same God who had been so faithful down through the years was trying to slip out undetected through a side door and make him go it alone. Moses must have been enraged, or at least scared down to his toes. To think of accomplishing something that significant for God and without having God there to direct his steps, he couldn't conceive of that. Hence, the little chat he initiated with God, and in, terms, in today's terms, Moses was just getting in God's face. Actually, there are two things for us to take away from this exchange between a faithful follower and his God. And the first one today is this. We need to go with God. Moses was a man concerned more with God's will and ways than his own. And the text says that Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. We don't achieve this level of intimacy on the fly. We don't breeze into the presence of God every few weeks and lob a few prayer requests his way and expect to be considered God's friend. No, this type of relationship is cultivated. There's an intention here. There's investment. There's depth So we read that Moses set up a tent of meeting outside the Israelites' camp and where he received the people when they had questions about spiritual issues. Moses would enter the tent, and on behalf of his friends and peers, he would solicit input from heaven on how to deal with their problems. And we're not told the size of the tent, but we know that the tent was symbolic. It reminded people that because of their sin, they were estranged from a holy God. They didn't enjoy the type of intimacy with God that Moses enjoyed, and maybe, like some of us here today, they thought they had a better way, a better plan. They thought the will of God was a little less intriguing than whatever their self and uh, will compelled them to do. Maybe a few of those Israelites were soccer parents, you know? They wanted to be close to God, or at least that's what they said they wanted, but with all those weekend tournaments, you know, their kids had to play. When were they supposed to go to church? Maybe some of those Israelites were business owners. Sure, it was nice to serve, to volunteer, to advise Moses on leadership decisions, or even help clean the tent from time to time. But when, were, when is that stuff supposed to happen? With board meetings to attend and financials to explain and marketing initiatives to launch, launch a person can only do so much. I wonder if some of them might have been retirees. Yeah, maybe they had a little extra time on their hands, but, you know, what about golf (laughs) and bridge club and plotting their escape to Florida, and I think some of them may have been 20-somethings, you know, still struggling to sort out life. The idea of God was okay, but only if he could get them a date or a job. See, the Israelites were a lot like us. They could have been single parents working three jobs to make the rent or double-income couples with more money than they could spend in good conscience. I know I've offended everybody in the room already this morning. But you get the point. I think Moses must have looked at this bunch of beloved people, the Bible calls them beloved ones, and absolutely was fuming inside. Actually, we know this is true. In chapter 32 of Exodus, Moses came down from Mount Sinai. You recall this story with two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments etched by the very finger of God. Moses had just had this incredible moment with God the Father during which God established a covenant relationship with his people. And when Moses goes down from that high place literally and figuratively, guess what he finds when he re-enters the ranks of his people? Apparently the people had gotten a little bored waiting for Moses to come back, and all manner of bedlam had ensued. People the beloved people of God, they were drunk. They were having orgies. They were melting down their precious metals and forming idols out of them, and all hell had broken loose among the people that God adored. And upon seeing this eruption of chaos, The text says Moses did four things. First, he smashed the tablets of law, which symbolized the breaking of the people's covenant with God. Secondly, he burned the idol, the golden calf, and he reduced it to powder, and he threw it out onto a body of water, and he made the people drink that chalky mix. Evidently, that was to make the deviants suffer a little consequence from their grievous sin. And third, he asked Aaron, who had been with the people the entire time, to give a full account of what had gone down. And then fourth, Moses cleaned house. He insisted that everyone who had been involved in the riotous acts step forward, and he proceeded to take their heads off. Exodus 32, 28 says 3,000 Israelites died that day. Moses had spent his life following hard after God, and now the people had been tasked with lead, he'd been tasked with to lead were following hard after their own wayward desires. The text says his anger burned. He wasn't angry because the people weren't obeying the law. He was angry because the people weren't doing what they said they would do. He wasn't angry because of this display of deviance. He was angry because they had lost Their vision. Moses burned in anger toward his own people because he knew that the intimacy he had been enjoying with God was something his friends would never know. Not now, anyway, while they were insisting on going their own way. And Moses was angry because he wanted more for this people that he loved. And if if he were standing here today in our presence, I think he'd want more for us, too. You know what I think he would tell us? I think he would say, nothing beats going with God. If Moses were here today, I think he would take a microphone and wander around this worship space and maybe the worship space of a lot of other churches. And I think he'd say, how has God been faithful to you? How has God been faithful to this church? And in some way that God in that same way that God protected the newborn baby Moses floating in a basket along the Nile River, in the same way that God provided for Moses when he was raised in the Egyptian court, in the same way that God redeemed and restored and renewed and revived Moses all throughout his life, God has shown up for us. Hasn't he? Hasn't God shown up for us many times? Hasn't he done great things for us? And yet we strike off into our daily lives assuming that he wants nothing to do with all that. And we say yes to athletic tournaments and board meetings and endless errands and things that we have to do while breezing right past the God who made us and loves us and delights in every detail of our life. I think Moses was so irritated back then and would have been irritated today because he knows what we know, we know deep down in our own souls, which is God's faithfulness cannot be trumped. When we trust God with our lives, God is faithful. And while, when we trust him with our day-to-day life, he's faithful. I think Moses would say, you say you want to be close to God, make worship a priority. Commune with God frequently. Don't let anything stand in the way of your relationship with God. I believe he'd say that to us. I know you think your way is better, but your own life proves that not to be true. We need to go with God. Nothing good happens when we choose to go our own way. But there's a second thing, a lesson out of this story today, and that's we need to let God go with us. Like Moses, we refuse. We need to refuse to go it alone. You've probably had the experience of facing a really important meeting. Maybe it was with a doctor, a prospective employer, with a bank. You're trying to get a loan. Whatever the case, I bet you enlisted the support of someone before you went. You may have even dragged that person with you. I can't do this alone. Please come with me. But at a minimum, you're probably call- you probably called or texted or talked to someone and said, Hey, meeting's in an hour. Your prayers would be appreciated. We've all done that, haven't we? What you are really saying to that loved one is, this is a really big deal in my life. And it would be less, feel less daunting if I knew I didn't have to go it alone. And that is exactly what Moses was after. Here he was, about to lead a group of people and a stubborn people through this process of building this dwelling place for God for God's very presence. Talk about a really, really big deal in life. And as Moses faced that prospect of getting it launched and getting it done, getting it right, I think he looked skyward and he said to God, "I'll do your will, heavenly Father, but only if you're right by my side." You know what God said in response? Moses says in Exodus 33:15, if your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us up from here, to which God replies, I will do the very thing that you've asked, because I'm pleased with you, and I know you by name. Doesn't that response give you a deep longing in your own soul to be found pleasing by God himself, to be known by him? You know what, can I tell you a secret today? God is pleased with you, and God does know your name. This isn't like that you know, cocktail party where some acquaintance who knows you so well introduces you as Joe instead of your name, John. This isn't at all like that. This is the stuff of family. God says, you are my beloved. You are known to me. You are loved. And we look at him and say, it's you alone I adore. Or we will say, hey, I'm just too busy for this right now. God knows the intention of our heart by the way that we invest our life. We choose chaos or we choose peace. We choose madness or we choose simplicity. We choose our own deal or we choose his deal. We say, I'm too busy for you, loving and gracious Father, or we say, I'll give you everything I've got. Just please stay by my side. Friends, I encourage you to insist on going God's way and demand that he stay by your side. Lay down your burdens, your to-do lists, your projects to complete, and pick up freedom and abundance. Let God dictate the pace of your life, but start by letting him dictate the pace of every single day. See, big things are affected by little things. Big uh, Big changes start with little changes. Uncluttering your life begins with uncluttering each day. So what am I asking? I'm asking that here and now, starting this week, you begin to measure your days. Many of us, I think, approach our days with a little panic rising in our chests as we ask ourselves, what do I absolutely have to get done today? How on earth am I going to get it all done? But this week, instead of taking the normal approach, I'm suggesting that you start with a different question. Who do I wish to become? When God asked Moses to be a leader, a deliverer for his people, that's who God wanted him to become. So for Moses, going with God meant to prioritize that goal. And for you and me here in the 21st century, we, our answer to the question of who God wants us to become probably isn't the deliverer of a nation but God maybe want us to be a devoted husband or wife, a grateful employee, a financially responsible young adult, a better listener, a kinder parent, someone who forgives easily. I don't know what the specifics are of what that will mean for you, to let go and let God go with you. What I do know is, like Moses, we, when we choose to go with God, there will be an adventure, There will be divine protection, there will be deep-seated sort of satisfaction that bubbles up within us when we're living life from the center of God's will. Who is God asking you to become? Will you arrange your schedule around that? This week, will you plan your days not according to the demands of your to-do list, but according to the divine promptings of God? If you've grown distant in your walk with Christ, will you reschedule your time for Bible reading and prayer, maybe even 15 minutes that start the day? If your relationship with your spouse has gotten stale, will you carve out some time to sit eyeball to eyeball this week and have a real conversation for a change? If money matters are keeping you up every night, there's no relief in sight, will you swallow your pride and take a, finally talk to a spiritual counselor or a financial counselor or sign up for a Financial Peace University class. You see, it's out of control health issues that are affecting your ability to experience peace. So maybe this week, finally say enough is enough and begin to make the change. I don't know what the situation is in your life keeping you from living a more simplified life, but I'd venture to guess that you do. Certainly God does, and between you and God, I imagine you can sort that thing out. That is what this series is all about. Sorting out the chaos that keeps us from living uncluttered lives. We all have the same amount of time in a week. The time is there to put God first, if we have eyes to see it. The time is also there to have leisure time to invest, as we wish. We just have to have God-given sight. Seeing clearly is sometimes a process instead of a one-time thing, but when we have faith that Jesus can heal us from the chaos that is ruling our lives, when we believe down to our toes that someday we will be able to see, I promise you that you will receive crystal clear sight because God always gives us eyes to see when we ask for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are the one who said these seemingly preposterous things and how grateful we are as your people today that you actually meant every word you said. So teach us today, instruct us in your mind-blowing, countercultural ways so that we may be the, a people of rest, a people of quiet spirits, gentle words, and peaceful lives. People of profound spiritual and emotional leisure. We love you. We love your word. Give us eyes to see and really, really see your truth today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.